0: So how we produce food, how we engage and become good stewards of the land and its resources connected in new and different ways. There can be
1: really radically uneven impacts of efforts to secure the water supply for a climate change future. We had
2: schools shutting down. You literally can't go outside in many parts of the state because you can't breathe.
3: Welcome to Securing Justice, a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, at Cal Poly Pomona, and generously supported by California Humanities. The focus of our podcast is on climate justice, an issue that affects people worldwide, particularly where inequality is greatest, but which is often disguised or invisible. My name is Nicole Lambrew, lecturer of urban planning at Cal Poly Pomona, executive director at Tinkercraft Design and Advocacy Group, and faculty fellow with CCEP. This podcast will explore issues surrounding climate change and inequality through a variety of means, panel discussions, interviews, and creative works by faculty and students. Our aim is not necessarily to debate approaches to climate change in California, though you will find some of that here, but rather to examine the multiple ways in which climate change is experienced by different peoples and communities with a lens on the question of justice. From artists and activists to philosophers and policy wonks, we hope to provide listeners with a varied and nuanced look at how climate issues affect the lives of Californians and others. In this episode of the series, CCEP student fellow Victoria Tran examines what it means to be Asian American in the Golden State. She navigates the turbulent history of Asian immigrants in California, issues of environmental justice, and white supremacy. Her narrative is personal and moving and highlights the likeness and difference between various Asian-American experiences. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, please share our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening.
4: Just a quick note before we start. Asians come in many forms. I just want to let me get clear that Asian-Americans don't come in a one color b one ethnicity or c under one identity there's a lot of names out there and titles and epithets are really powerful so i just wanted to make clear that i don't want to diminish the importance of that but if you consider yourself to be asian american or anything of the sort this will pertain to you and there will be mentions of racial injustice pertaining to asian americans so if you are willing to sit through that discussion Please do so. In 2019, the US Census had found that 39% of the state was Hispanic or Latinx. People who identify as Caucasian descent made up the next largest group. People who identify as Black or of African descent made up 6% of California. And then the third largest group, AAPI, or Asian American and Pacific Islander, is the one that I belong to, making up 15% of the state in 2019. And as the fastest growing minority population, that number is for sure steadily increasing. I do live in California, in Los Angeles County, and I'm really proud to be Californian. We have golden waters, we have golden lands, we have golden skies. And the AAPI community, we have golden people, despite what Others have made us think. The Los Angeles County
3: Commission on Human Relations found anti Asian hate crimes
1: in Los Angeles County increased by 76% in 2020. The data comes from more than 40 different city police departments and agencies at schools, universities, and colleges. LACCHD also says the number of reports on hate crimes is likely drastically underreported. The study suggests the rate at which the crimes were violent was also up 77% and another aspect of this report, 23% of the crimes explicitly blamed the victim for COVID-19. The full scope of the report remains to be seen, but it has many local...
4: You see, despite the fact that I'm always told that my skin is yellow, it makes it all the more clear that i deserve to be in california after all yellow is a really close cousin of gold and what better place to live than the golden state right california isn't perfect but it's home and my home is in crisis
3: california now has a new climate Essentially, we're getting very severe heat waves, leading to rapid snow melt, and that means that the water supply that we've typically counted on in the past is much less reliable, and vegetation is drier. So scientists see these dry conditions as signs of what's to come. To gear up for the upcoming wildfire season, Cal Fire has added 1,400 additional firefighters and more fire engines.
4: These aren't really new threats. California's climate crisis and the continuous injuring of its citizens aren't, they aren't new, unfortunately. And they have been historically and presently intertwined. California, its climate, its gold, and the AAPI people. And it's presently and historically being ignored still, California, its gold, its environment, and its people. It's not somebody else's gold. It's not someone else's responsibility. It's our golden land, it's our golden skies, it's our golden seas. and it's our golden people it's under threat our gold i'm victoria tron and this is the gold of the golden state humans are really interesting in the fact that we take literally this shiny metal and we use it to crown peak human achievement. Like we see it in Olympic medals and we see it decorating the tombs of dead emperors and we see it uh, when someone is iced out on the street, right? Like for some reason we seem to have an obsession with this shiny malleable yellow metal, and we use it to apply it to things that aren't necessarily yellow, we use it to apply to a golden age where a dynasty or a kingdom has reached the peak of its prosperity, or we use it to refer to the golden rule, treat others with how you want to be treated. So when did we become yellow and not golden? It wasn't a question that I knew I particularly had, but it was answered when I was talking to one of the lovely professors that we have at Cal Poi Pomona. Her name is Dr. Luene Hong area of expertise include urban and social policies, race, ethnic communities, and, importantly for me, an emphasis in Asian American studies. And I had a lot of questions, she had a lot of answers, and I wanted to share some of those snippets with you. Especially this really interesting one pertaining to where the idea of a yellow scare came from.
1: But he had a dream about um the quote-unquote orient right the east taking over the west and there's actually if you google it there is a um a painting of that, that um of that dream and it caused this sphere of you know um asians taking over the world right so
4: he's talking about the last german emperor kaiser wilhelm ii And the painting that he commissioned is called peoples of europe guard your most sacred possessions 1895 and you see standing on a cliffside a bunch of eurocentric looking women dressed in armor in wings in beautiful white skirts holding shields and swords and spears and ominously in the distance there's a buddha clouded by shadow and darkness coming ever so closer to this cliffside that they appear to be defending. There is a cross, quite, quite literally hanging over these women, as if guarding them, as if giving them the strength they need to fight against this monstrosity, against the Buddha, against Asia.
1: So it wasn't just localized to the United States, how it um manifested in the united states right was that we were um in starting in the 1850s um there was uh laborers um um immigrating and migrating to the united states to do the cheap labor right um that um, uh, you know that industries like railroad industries, agriculture, um, wanted cheap labor. So they looked at it, looked at global sources and and um, recruited um, uh, primarily men from um, Asian countries, right?
4: And recruiting is a far more polite term than what it probably actually was, which was desperation. You see, Asian peoples, especially to Chinese, were dealing with a lot of pressures from their mother country. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a domestic issue, until it was, but more so a colonial issue, and imperialists taking advantage of their less technologically advanced, uh, neighbors. In a time where Chinese teas and porcelains and silks were in high demand, the British could not keep up with the lacking amount of silver that China had used as their currency at the time. So they developed a barter system using a middleman, Indian Opium. And you can probably guess what happened next. There were two subsequent wars, the first and second Opium War, and China did not emerge victorious from either of them. Because Opium had created an age of addiction and an age of civil unrest, Farmers that were already struggling from poor farming conditions such as massive droughts or water shortages was not able to deal with a lot of the new demands that their country was going through, and so they fled. The British poisoning had won out. After all, when they heard of these merchant vessels bringing in news of Uh, a gamsan, a gold mountain that was found in California, of course these poor men would jump at the chance to get their weight. This miracle medal that their emperor was crowned in, or this miracle medal that they knew would bring them prosperity, of course they would go. It's so much better than what they had there,
3: right? refers to the forced displacement of what white American colonizers called the Five Civilized Tribes. Over 20 years, between 1830 and 1850, somewhere around 60,000 to 100,000 Native Americans were forced from their homes into land the new government had decided... And so as a result of Indian the Compromise of 1850, one of the provisions the medieval, was that died, a new fugitive exposure, slave law and would be Scotland enforced. Ship which would bring the federal government much more directly involved, which would provide financial incentives uh, for judges to rule in favor of slaveholders, and which would deny slaves any prospect of a jury trial.
4: So this is the land that these hopeful Chinese men would be taking their chances with. And you could probably say they're really resilient given how many AAPI, specifically Chinese Americans, Live in the Bay Area today. Now, that is also a slight issue, and one that I hadn't particularly thought about until me and Doctor Holm continued um, our conversation uh, further. Uh,
1: wait, because I hate saying that culture is sort of a, a uh, as a, a default reason, but there can be reasons, again, why people may um, socially and psychologically feel safer in other neighborhoods as well, too, and don't feel that they have access to other spaces that have that are don't have as much pollutants that have better amenities, right. But because of, again, kind of these larger legacies of exclusion that intersect with race, class, gender, sexuality, right, certain spaces have been built (laughs) um, and created in such a way that can still exclude folks even if they may, you know, it may seem that they have access to it, but in a lot of ways they don't.
4: What is this invisible, illusionary access that she talks about? Well in the san francisco bay area lower income folks who spend a lot of time fishing out in the piers often supplement their family dinner table it's not recreational right because they can bring home these fish and it's normally free of charge despite you know parking and stuff like that so they bring home striped bass sturgeon halibut these large apex fish that consume other fish now the issue with that is if these smaller fish eat something that's not great and then the slightly bigger fish eats something that's not great and it gets all the way to the big fish, at that point there's a lot of that one thing. That one thing I'm talking about is mercury because as an unfortunate byproduct of the gold rush. To extract gold, oftentimes these large-scale mining companies used mercury to extract the gold further, and once the mining operation shut down, the mercury was left to rot in old machines that were never properly cleaned up, in the Sierra foothills that are permanently altered because of hydraulic mining, and it would sink into the ground, get its way into streams and rivers and deposit itself into the San Francisco Bay, where it sits, waiting. And not to say that San Francisco hasn't made an effort to clean up this, it's just, it's a metal, there's a lot, and it's gonna take time, and it's not necessarily advised as much as it should. Perhaps because it is lower income populations that are at risk, not affluent ones. After all, the affluent ones don't have to fish out of rivers and lakes to normally supplement their meals. It's a shame because the Asian American population, specifically in San Francisco, make about 42% of the residents that live in poverty. So as you can imagine, a lot of them probably have a lot of mercury buildup. And obviously, while it's going to take a while to do long-term testing, AAPIs, for the limited data that we do have on them, have a significantly higher chance of getting tuberculosis, of getting lung cancer, of getting diabetes. And it wouldn't be surprising to say that it might be due to the mercury buildup that has lent itself to lowering immune systems or giving to cancer growth. We can't deny that fact either. So what about other invisible pollutants? What else are dangers that we can't see? What are the dangers that this invisible model minority are exposed to? Of
2: polluting industries or uh, polluting you know, entities, right? In communities of color is because there is knowledge that communities of color have less political power they have less political
4: networks and resources and monies. This is Nadia Y. She's a professor of sociology and of Asian and Asian American studies at Loyola Marymount University. And she's awesome. (laughs) She recently published a book called Refusing Death, Immigrant Women and the Fight for Environmental Justice in LA. And it's a really good read, uh, despite the fact that there's, you know, many complex words. It's uh, academic scholarship. But I was really intrigued that she was talking about something that isn't normally talked about, maybe perhaps because we were invisible for so long.
2: And so the fact that AAPIs are often seen as having the least amount of political power and um, resources is one of the reasons why a community like Carson, is surrounded by oil refineries and is right next to the diesel-polluting port of LA, port of Long Beach, the diesel-polluting rail yards, that that cart, all the goods that come from China and other manufacturing countries, to the stores and the car dealerships uh, and the warehouses all over the country. ...United States, with the port of Long Beach not far behind, roughly
1: 40% of America's cargo comes through these ports.
2: The average number of container
1: ships at the ports of Long Beach and LA, 16. Right now, more than 110. You can see so many of them stacked up. They wait for weeks at a time sometimes. And you can see the heavy line of smog and haze sitting right over where people live. They can't take any more. Yet in the last year, more ships means more trucks, more trains, and more pollution.
4: In the 1920s, Oil was discovered in Echo Park of Los Angeles County. It soon boomed the industry, and sooner or later, the landscape was very much drastically changed. It was what created LA's wealth to begin with. Not Hollywood, despite the typical depictions or what you expect, nor was it the tourists. It was oil, this black gold that was found easily near the surface and was easily extracted just as much as its original predecessor, gold, was. And a universal and gold-be-accepted rule is still the same. Gold brings about power, gold brings about abundance, and gold brings about progress. So this could definitely constitute, in California's eyes, as, as gold. Now the issue is, where the oil was being gotten from, as well as where the oil is going because oil derricks were placed everywhere across California. They were starting to be installed in neighborhoods, beaches, and even in the Venice canals. And it's still happening to the modern day where oil derricks, you can see them in the parking lots of McDonald's just randomly in neighborhoods, still pumping, still going and they're not stopping anytime soon. And we should probably go back to that point about freeways. Because California is built on a sprawl, as well as specifically LA County. To get anywhere, you kind of need a car. You can't really walk to the grocery store, right? Even to get gas, you can't fill up a tank that you bring, a portable tank. You have to physically bring your car there, fill up probably your car and your portable tank there. So California is kind of, kind of sprawled out, so you need a car to get everywhere. And the issue with that is, where do the freeways go? Because they take up so much room. And how much diesel and how much oil is being used to get to where you need to go.
2: Freeways we don't recognize are actually one of the most racist monuments that we have in our country. We usually think of Confederate statues, right, as our most racist monuments, but we need to understand that freeways are among our most racist monuments because they're often deliberately placed in, near, or through communities of color.
4: Probably the most prominent and the most well-known version of AAPI history especially AAPI exclusionary acts, is the Japanese internment caps which to this day remain to be absolutely horrific. I don't care what anyone says, the fact that it happened at all is tragic. And so even after that whole ordeal was done, when the Japanese Americans returned to what they thought was their home. They simply found it not there. Their belongings were confiscated. Their possessions were taken. Everything else was just stolen. So what did they have to do? They had to rebuild with whatever scraps they had left. And that often meant taking up the things that affluent Caucasian neighbors wouldn't want to do. Such as living near bustling, noisy freeways. And what we would later find out would be massive, massive, massive machines of pollution. Mountains of dirt. Los Angeles Metro and Caltrans have been hard at work widening the freeway, which they say will improve traffic. The $1.3 billion project is over five years late and $73 million over budget. 20 miles south, Metro is planning another freeway widening project.
3: Metro still wants to potentially take over 500 parcels here in Downey. Today, in 2020, uh, a predominantly working class neighborhood, a Latino neighborhood, is threatened with extinction.
4: According to a Washington Post article made in 2021, a study had found that Black people were exposed to 21% more fine particle pollution than the average American while for Hispanics, it was 11% more, and for Asian Americans, it was 18% more. White Americans, by contrast, had 8% less pollution exposure than the average. There is something incredibly fascinating about how there are multiple facets to this, how California's ever-changing climate has so many different factors to the point where I can identify with it. And it's not something that can be easily said, right? That there's so many different ways that I feel connected to it, and it's occasionally pretty overwhelming. Here's about it: you often think
1: of these kind of larger movements around climate change, right? Um, toxins, pollutants, right? Um, industrial sites, and fighting against that near your neighborhood, too, right? I would argue that there can there's environmental justice work that happens at a smaller scale that might be worth looking at too um I, uh, my other hat was public health for a while with asian american communities and public health and that includes occupational health right and that is a type of environment that you are exposed to and so there is a lot of literature about well a lot of literature in public health well I shouldn't say a lot. There's enough literature in public health that talks about um, occupational health hazards.
4: I don't know about that, Dr. Holm. I would argue that there's not that many, not much literature. It's too little literature about public health, especially when it comes to occupational exposure. Um, One particular narrative that I would like to see more of would be focusing on the exposures that Filipino farmers have to deal with, especially after their triumphs in getting fair wages and, you know, the whole labor movement.
0: When one of our guys
1: falls down and he gets hurt, someone's gotta cover his benefits. We're gonna have a a health plan. When these guys get old, we're gonna have a pension plan.
0: Larry Eteljong was president of the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, known as AWOC. Summer of 65, he began to talk about organizing, improving the working conditions and increasing the salaries.
4: Uh, we feel that we, farm workers, uh, should have an organization of our own.
1: One of the things that most people forget is that it was the Filipinos in September 1965 who started the grape strike, not the Mexicans.
4: And why don't we talk about this? It's understandable why we put Cesar Chavez on such a high pedestal, and why we celebrate the Mexican-Americans that have basically built this valley from the ground up. And yet, why don't we talk about the Filipinos that did the same? Because they arrived about 33 years prior to the pilgrims arriving at Plymouth. This is history that we don't talk about, and furthermore, there's a present being that we don't really talk about either. There's not much narrative about Filipino farm workers today. And after all that Larry Itliong has done, it feels like a shame that we don't try and improve their conditions even more so. We already know that farm workers are perhaps one of the most vulnerable groups that we have in California, and even more so, the AAPI community is a vulnerable group. So put those two together and you get a underrepresented, not at all talked about labor force. Where's their stories? Where's their studies?
3: Which forced tens of thousands of evacuations in the midst of the pandemic. Worsening wildfires in California's wine country seem to burn houses and hovels indiscriminately, but advocates say the workers who toil in fields to produce some of the world's most expensive wines in the shadow of multi-million dollar homes risk losing much more.
4: Sometimes it's the lack of information that really gets to you. I'll be honest, when researching all of this, There was so much scarcity in what was talked about, I couldn't find particular things pertaining to one group, let alone a whole subdivision of the US Census, AAPI, that was so frustrating. In which I... there's so many stories about how minorities and low income are unfortunately and unequally affected by these disparities that COVID-19, that the climate crisis, that all these present factors have had on them. And yet I could find almost nothing about me. I'm not gonna lie. I've spent quite a while throwing a pity party on myself because of how little I could get. And it, yes, it was mostly because I was getting frustrated by the lack of progress I made, but it was also, wow. Nothing about me is accessible, huh? Nothing about my identity is so easily so easily found. Like apparently it's so confusing that Google can't tell me everything. Right? Which is so surprising because Google tells us everything. I just felt so lost for a while. So I'd like to introduce you to one more person. His name is Sang So, and he is the state organizer for APEN, the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, mostly situated in the Bay Area, but hopefully by next year, they will be residing in Los Angeles County as well. Warning, this dude is really personable, and I really would appreciate if you guys could look into more of APEN's work.
0: I have to stand, um, even when I'm gone. You know, that's how I think about it now was like when I sit down and talk to my daughter and when I see her, you know, um, struggling with certain things or or have questions about things, I I really think about, okay, what I say and what I do has to be um, something that has longevity um, that can leave behind a legacy for her to look at as a model. Whether or not she follows it it's out of my control, but what I, you know, what I want to leave with her is like, she can look at the things that I've left her as like a path to walk, you know? And maybe she can grow that path, you know, make it flourish and blossom with trees and plants and all that, and all the things that were left for me to walk my path, you know, that was laid for my parents. Um, she's going to be walking the path to continue on that journey. So, it's really how I look at it now, you know, um, I, you know, and i you know, I can't lie. I, I was uh, <clears throat> at one point, like just very angry, very bitter, very jaded about, you know, all that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, so it's real. It's very real.
4: a isn't new to legacies and even behind a mark. The first National Peoples of Color Environmental Leadership Summit is probably one of the most important events in the history of the environmental justice movement. The four-day summit, sponsored by the United Church of Christ Commissions for Racial Justice, began in Washington, D.C. on October 24, 1991. Around 1,100 people attended from all 50 states as well as Puerto Rico, Chile, Mexico, and the Marshall Islands, The inclusive breath of participation allowed for the environmental justice movement to finally redefine the meaning of environment because for a while the word just meant wilderness and this beautiful pristine thing that affluent people could enjoy and now the environment encompassed where one worked where one lived where one studied where someone played where someone prayed It encompassed the whole range of issues from housing to transportation to worker safety and toxic pollution. Issues that what a predominantly white movement had previously been now encompasses for lower income minorities and just non-Caucasian peoples.
0: Within that summit, there were calls from BIPOC people to like have an intersectionality, and analysis that would include their lives and their histories. So from that, um, there were like these groupings of people that developed this set of principles, set of values that spoke to BIPOC people. And Asian Americans were at the forefront at the leadership table of helping develop that. And APEN kind of sprung from that, you know, that summit, that that gathering of people who wanted to address and who saw the early warning signs of climate change in in their work and in their communities. And that that was kind of like the first on-ramp for APEN and developing APEN. I think there are, um, many ways in which Asian Americans and climate change have, like, intertwined, you know, in the U.S.
2: We'll never fully understand what racism and white supremacy is or what capitalism is um, or intersectional violence or any of those things unless we fully grasp what uh, environmental injustices and climate injustices are. And a perfect example of this is that there's been very little connection made between the fact that the most uh sickened and the disproportionately dying populations were black latinx and pacific islander and indigenous
0: communities like the way in which um cities have been redlined you know the way in which like you're only able to buy housing in certain areas in areas where industries are being built um you know <clears throat> is a way in which environmental racism happens like uh, pacific honor communities here in los angeles reside in um, areas where there are high concentrations of industries, of refineries, of freeways, of the rail yards and the ports in the South Bay. It's like in the nexus of that, the industry, and it's like Pacific Islanders, Filipinos, Koreans, um, you know, Southeast Asians, they exist in these areas because these are the areas that were viable to them financially, and also where they were systematically policy-wise pushed into. You know, these communities comprise Asian-Americans along with other like BIPOC folks. So I think there are like connections there for Asian-Americans in relation to environmental justice climate change work. Uh, for refugee communities like my own, like when we were when we were placed and sponsored into um, cities, particularly our times, we were placed into cities that were already um, like under-resourced, devastated, um, marginalized.
2: And why is that? Well, Pacific Islander, Indigenous, Black, and Latinx populations live in the most environmentally polluted communities. And so their health, their lungs, their bodies are already sickened, right? And so when COVID attacks the body, and attacks their bodies worse. And that's why they had the highest rates of hospitalization and premature death, right? And so we couldn't, we can't even understand the COVID global pandemic without understanding environmental racism and classism, right? So we have to also do a little bit of the work of educating ourselves and spreading the word.
0: We we fit in this picture, there's no doubt about it. And there's many ways in which like, we can find on ramps or connections to how we fit in. Um, even though we don't necessarily think about Asian Americans and climate change, um, if we really sat down and and thought about it and talked story about it and, like, really looked at, examine our histories, examine where we're at, examine, uh, like, our identities, we can see those connections.
1: This idea of representation matters, right? I think mm-hmm. is something to unpack and we can think of representation in all these different arenas that matter in helping to shape our understanding of Asian of the Asian American experience right so uh,
4: I do want to note that we're not doing nothing APEN for example has done quite a bit in recent history they've won several of their against the chevron refinery and they still continue to be winning them. The 2900 acre refinery is one of the largest and oldest on the west coast and it is considered to be the blight of Richmond area. In recent history there is the 2012 explosion that sent 15,000 people to seek medical attention for respiratory distress and February 2021 A oil spill leaked about 600 gallons into the bay. And Richmond's childhood asthma is at 17% more than double the national average, and the city also has high rates of cancer, respiratory illness, autoimmune diseases, and other ailments. And I suppose to policymakers, state makers, anyone in charge, there's no correlation at all. none. I don't understand how they would see a correlation, right? Right. In 1999, a earlier explosion would spew smoke all across the county, and the emergency telephone service sent out a bunch of warnings. But notably, it was only in English, so for the nearby large lounging refugee community nearby, they didn't understand, and. The people that went to investigate, the people that were just regularly living their lives, inhewed all these nauseous fumes, and more than 2,500 Richmond residents ended up in the hospital. Chevron is Richmond's largest source of tax income, but even that benefit has a bunch of inequity laced with it. So local organizers rallied to change this. And in 2008, the coalition was able to get a large manufacturer's tax into the ballot, and it passed. Chevron contested it, and a judge just struck it down. But in 2010, after further efforts from the city and local organizers, the company agreed to a settlement that included 114 million dollars. Remembering that we can make a place for ourselves here have a home where no one else wants us, have a place where no one else wants to see us. It's very, really, really important for us to have that recognition that, yes, we do belong on these golden lands. Modern versions of the Yellow Peril still remain today, in which we are vilified for having one identity and yet criticized if we attempt to be individuals. We are made sick, features in history, dirty in the media, and eyesore in politics. Gold is known for its iconic yellow radiance. Yet when yellow becomes a person, they become wretched. Gold made California. We made California. We were here for the gold, for the black gold, for the golden land. So I guess they might be right about the yellow part. We are made of warm sunlight, majestic land, and glorious metal bones. Gold is power, gold is abundance, and gold is progress. And there is gold in our veins. Thank you so much to all the people that are interviewed, which includes Dr. Nadia Y. Kim, Dr. Laureen Holm, and Sang Seul from APEN. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for allowing me some of your time and be able to compile it into this podcast. Thank you to Oak Studios, who has kindly allowed people on YouTube to use their music copyright free as long as you credit them properly. So please go check them out in case you decided that you liked any of the audio tracks that I have used in this project. Thank you very much to the Ethics and Policy Center at Cal Poly Pomona for allowing me this opportunity. Thank you to Dr. Lambro, who has facilitated a lot of the discussion and has allowed me to do this project despite um, possible reservations that both you and I have had. And finally, a big thank you to my elder sister, who has allowed me usage of her audio equipment, though I don't think I utilized it well enough. And to the people at MediaVision or whome- whoever else is going to edit this file, uh, I apologize, and thank you for your aid. And to the listeners who have stuck around all the way through, truly thank you for listening to what I had to say, and giving it some thought. Thank you very much.
3: A special thanks to all the CCEP students who worked together over the past few months to put together this podcast series and for the ongoing advice of our CCEP faculty fellows. And thanks to you for listening.